0: And chapter 18, verse 9. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie here, O sluggard, when you arise from your sleep? A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you call a lazy person from Kentucky? A Louisville sluggard. I just made that up. Sorry, a little humor here because we have some deep stuff we're going to wade into this morning. My name is Dan DiCristia. I'm one of the elders here at City Church Eastside. And, of course, we're in our series uh, Glittering Vices. And if you know the saying, all that uh, glitters is not gold. And we're going to be juxtaposing you know, the virtue against the sin. And the sin here is sloth. And the virtue, of course, is care. Uh, And so we're going to jump right into that here with a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, In February 1938, Adolf Hitler gave a speech that was designed to stir up support for the greater expansion of Germany. The speech was given at the Reichstag, but broadcast all throughout Austria. And he said this, The German Reich is no longer going to tolerate the suppression of 10 million Germans across its borders. Now, at the time, at the western edges of Czechoslovakia and much of Austria, they were filled with ethnically German people. At least in regards to Czechoslovakia, Hitler was sort of telling the truth. For many years, Germans there were suppressed and kept out of the Czechoslovakian political process. Of course, though, the problem with all of this, both Czechoslovakia and Austria were sovereign nations. Soon after his speech, Hitler gave Austria an ultimatum to hand over the power to the Austrian political Nazis that were already in the country. And in desperation, knowing what was coming, Austria phoned a friend, France and Britain, but their calls went unanswered. On March 15, 1938, uh, Hitler and the German army marched into Austria and landed at the Heldenplatz. Uh, Hitler told a crowd of cheering ethnic Germans, they were cheering at the time, that the oldest eastern province of the German people, referring to Austria, from this point on, is the newest bastion of the German Reich. And so, oddly enough, with lots of fanfare and little conflict, Austria was annexed by the Germans. So next up, Czechoslovakia. About six months later... After this speech, fighting broke out in Czechoslovakia in an area that was known as the Sudetenland, mostly inhabited, again, by ethnic Germans. They lived in and around the Sudeten mountains, like, since the Middle Ages, so for a long time. And Hitler's vision for the greater Germany, he had to have Sudetenland. He had to have it. So enter Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Now, Chamberlain was keeping an eye on Hitler, on his political moves, on his military moves, on his rhetoric. France was also watching, too. But it was really under the leadership of Chamberlain that France and England took a policy and doctrine of appeasement. A policy of appeasement toward Hitler and Germany. Appeasement meaning choosing inaction as a strategy versus action. Allowing Hitler to have small little victories, with the hope that that would keep him content with his victories. So appeasement, to some extent, was at the time understandable because this is 1938. World War One was 20 years before. I mean, that would be like us thinking back to the Second Iraq War. Uh, it's not that long ago, honestly, and so. Folks suffered through a, a tremendous amount of trauma in Europe, of course, in World War I, and many of the people that were alive at the beginning of World War II were alive during World War I, as well, too, it was only 20 years or so apart. They were still war-weary. Chamberlain was one of these people. Chamberlain said this, How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here in England, Because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people we rarely know, referring to the Czechoslovakians. So Chamberlain is basically saying here, strategically, I don't care. I don't care. We don't care. We don't really care about these countries that Hitler is threatening. He's sort of saying, Adolf, you can have your way with these countries. Just leave us alone. Just leave us alone. They're indifferent. This appeasement strategy was codified in what was called the Munich Agreement, and I'll put a picture here up on the screen. You have uh, actually this picture from the Munich Agreement. You see Neville Chamberlain on the left, and of course Hitler, Mussolini in the uh, the middle right. Hitler, Mussolini, Chamberlain, Lord Halifax—they fought like cats and dogs around this. They negotiated into the night, but. Hitler was not going to give up on what he wanted. He had to have Sudetenland. And in the spirit and doctrine of appeasement, what happened? They gave in. He got it. He got it. He got Sudetenland. Chamberlain, Lord Halifax, France, negotiating on the behalf of the Czechoslovakians, actually had to call up the president and prime minister in Czechoslovakia and say, I'm sorry, you've got to give up some of your country. Hitler wants it. What do you got to keep? And of course, they chose Prague and the more Slavic regions of the country. They gave over the ethnically German parts of the country. Jan Mazarisk, the foreign minister, said this in response to all this. He said, if you have sacrificed my nation to preserve the peace of the world, I'll be the first to applaud you. But if not, God help your soul. Now, I suppose that Chamberlain was a little bit nervous. (laughs) He got what we like to call uh, alligator arms or uh, Tyrannosaurus rex arms. Like, ooh. It's like when someone hands you the check at the restaurant. A little bit concerned here. Maybe we made a boo-boo with this whole policy of appeasement. Is this the right thing for us to do with Hitler? Worried, Chamberlain uh, phoned Hitler's people and set up a private meeting in Munich, actually at Hitler's apartment. And in preparation for this meeting... Chamberlain and his, his advisors and aides, they drew up a document. They drew up a document. It was called the Anglo-German Naval Agreement. And it was described as this, a symbol of the desire of England and Germany never, ever to go to war again. Sounds good, right? So no no more World War I, no more World War II. The Munich Agreement was to demonstrate that this appeasement strategy was the right strategy. And not caring was the right strategic move here, that France, Germany gave Hitler what he wanted, and then that would win the peace, that would win the shalom in Europe. And according to Hitler's interpreter, he happily agreed at the time. Chamberlain folded (laughs) up this agreement, literally, and put it in his front pocket. Uh, And he flew back to London and the crowds went wild. He was hailed as a national hero. They actually cut a record. Uh, it was like, God bless Neville Chamberlain. Like, in response to this great uh, accomplishment of him, he negotiated with Hitler, the tyrant, the liar, the robber, and won the peace. Chamberlain, in the famous speech here, with the document literally still in his front pocket in front of his airplane, said this. My good friends, this is the second time I've come back from Germany to Downing Street with peace with honor. I believe it is peace in our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. It looked like this appeasement strategy was victorious. Inaction versus action was sweet. And not caring about the Czechs and the Austrians, well, that was just collateral damage for the greater good, because we've won the greater peace here. Shortly after this meeting, Hitler told his generals, our enemies are small worms. Our enemies are small worms. I saw them in Munich." Hitler also went on to say, if I ever see that silly old man again, I'm going to throw him down the steps and jump on his chest. Uh, I don't know if he took the bargain, if you will. And we know a few months later, Hitler took over the rest of Czechoslovakia, Poland, France, the Netherlands. We know the rest of the story. So I ask you, friends, do you think that appeasement in the face of evil... In the face of these liars, these these cheaters, it was the right strategy? Was it the right strategy? Friends, I give you this outrageously long intro for three reasons. It's likely more appropriate than my Billy Madison Adam Sandler uh, one I was going to do. I threw that out on Monday. Second of all. I want us to also see the similarities between our time and this time, because history repeats itself. And third, I want us to reframe how we think of sloth and what we do with it. I want us to reframe how how we think of sloth in our own lives and around us and what we do with it. Because as for the reframe, I don't know about you, but when I think of sloth personified, I think of like Jabba the Hutt, right? Right? Or if you're a baseballs fan, like Pizza the Hut. You know, it's this disgusting sort of sedentary figure that just consumes. Maybe it was your college roommate that all he did was play Mario Kart, you know, and, you know, eat chips and allow the dishes to pile up in the sink. And I apologize if that offended anyone if that was actually you. But that's what we do with sin, right? We do it. We, you know, we create this picture of it in sort of this extreme example you know, I think the German word is gestalt. create this gestalt, and we throw, you know, we throw darts at it. We say, that's not me. I'm not like that. That's somebody else. When in fact, sloth and this sin is much more subtle. It's much more subtle and insidious. And that's why we're going to take a look at it here today. Because I know my intro is so long, but I'm going to be brief and only give you two points here today. Two points. That sloth kills care, and Christ redeems sloth. Sloth kills care, and Christ redeems sloth. So we're going to jump into it and take another look at our text this morning. It says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? So in our text this morning, we see two characters and a situation. If you know the book of Proverbs, that's pretty common, right? There's usually two characters juxtaposed against each other in a particular situation. So here we have the ant versus the sluggard, and the situation are their activities. Now, I find this word, sluggard, to be quite interesting. I mean, don't you? I mean, it's not a word we use every day. Maybe we should start, I don't know, or maybe we haven't used it in generations, maybe like since biblical times, honestly, (laughs) but it only shows up in the book of Proverbs and all of the scripture. Can you believe that? It only shows up in the book of Proverbs and it shows up 14 times, which is pretty significant for the most part. So looking at this word, you know, when you see something sort of that rare, but that frequent in a particular place, it usually, you know, sort of sets off the alarm. It's like, I need to do some like deep exegetical work here to get into the, the deep meaning of this. But, in, you know, in starting to do that, I, at the end of the day, I just realized there's really nothing deep about this word in Hebrew. It just means plain lazy. It just means lazy. You look it up, it means lazy. It means sluggish. It means lazy. that's so sort of like it. It just means lazy. But this creates a problem for me. I wish there was some deeper meaning here. It creates a problem for me because I think that lazy is relative. It's a relative term, right? I mean, what might be lazy to one person might not be lazy to another. I mean, someone in their 70s living in the Florida Keys is probably going to have a different version of lazy than maybe some stock trader in Manhattan in their 30s. It's it's a bit relative to your particular situation. So how are we to make moral determinations around this sluggard term when it's so relative? So let's put that aside for a second. Let's look at this ant, what the text is telling us. Now, this ant, seemingly insignificant figure, probably something you have stepped on indiscriminately throughout your life, somehow gets the honor in this passage. The ant gets the honor. If you've ever watched those wonderfully dramatic nature shows, you know, half the time they're narrated by David Attenberg. I think that's his name. It would be great if he was preaching this today, you know, his great voice, his booming voice. Well, if you watch those, those great shows and David Attenberg's talking about the ants, there's one thing that you know about ants is they bust their butts. They work hard for themselves as well as the queen and the, the whole community together. I don't even know if an ant has a butt, but if it does, it busts it. I assume they do. They're always working. They're always busy, right, storing, crafting. So one takeaway for us could be that the Scripture is telling us we need to be busy all the time. We need to be busy all the time, right? And if we're not, we're being a sluggard. Be like the ant. Never rest, always working. But that doesn't fly either because we're designed for rest. I mean, it's one of the commandments. So how do we hold these two things in tension here? It's a little confusing. And if we come to that conclusion that we should always be busy, I think we miss the point. This isn't about food. This isn't about work so much as it is about care. It's about care and caring for the right things and taking action in the right things. If you look at the ant, as it says in the text, let us consider the ant. The ant cares for itself and its fellow ant, and it does the work to deliver on that care. The work that it does is the work that it is supposed to do. It's designed to do it. It doesn't have something or someone forcing it to do that particular work. It just does it without equivocation, without delay. The ant somehow intuitively knows in its little ant body what is right, and it doesn't. The sluggard, on the other hand, the sluggard doesn't really seem to care. He or she must think this... Like, I got all the time in the world. (laughs) Or, even worse, I just don't care. I don't care. And this is a human. This is not an ant. I mean, you think the human would be a little wiser than the ant. They're choosing the opposite of the wise old ant. Not doing the work that he or she should be doing. Maybe doing something else or nothing at all. See, it's important to understand that lazy. The reason why we're having a problem with it being relative is that lazy is really always to be understood in the context of what should be done at that time. What is the right action in the face of a particular situation? What is good, right, and true? And are you moving toward that or moving away from it? Moving toward it is care. Away from it is indifference, lack of care. So let's look at the second part of the scripture here. <clears throat> When will you arise from your sleep? Again, talking to the sluggard. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come to you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard. The sluggard is choosing to rest, again, in the face of a particular situation, in face of what they should be doing. Maybe they're procrastinating. Maybe it's out of ignorance. A lot of times it's out of fear fear of failure, fear of relationship, foolishness, whatever it is, they're opting out and there are consequences to this opting out. As I was putting this together almost immediately, I thought of another time where there were grave consequences and there was a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and that was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It says this in our scripture here. We'll put it up on the screen. Matthew 26. And going a little farther, he fell on the face, or his face, and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass uh, from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not. Fall into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is not the sluggard. Jesus knows what's up. He knows what's up. He knows the situation. He's active and going to the Father, pursuing His will in the situation. The ant knows what's up. It needs to do this work or it will die for the sake of itself and the community. It's about doing what is right right now. But to disengage and abdicate, take nap time when it's not nap time, is the work of the sluggard. So what happens? The consequences. The consequences are that poverty, the robber comes. Of course, you know, Garden of Gethsemane, right after that, Judas and the mob comes to take Jesus and arrest him. And in our story this morning, we know that Hitler invades another country. So friends, let us make no mistake, rest is not inherently bad. Of course, we're called to rest. We're designed for rest. But busyness is not inherently good. And we sure act like that in this culture, right? You talk to somebody, we say, how are you doing? I'm busy. We're designed to rest. We're designed to work. The question, though, is, are we doing what we should be doing at the time? Are we doing what is right right now? If the answer is no, we don't need to look like Jabba the Hutt to be The sluggard, if you will. So where do we go from here? So in college, for myself, I was not the sluggard on the couch playing the video games with the dishes all piled up. A little self-righteous plug for myself there. That is not me. I kept a pretty clean apartment. Actually, so much so that I annoyed my roommates because I was always going around vacuuming and fluffing pillows And doing things like that. I had a Pier 1 charge card, actually. I still have some of that furniture today. Yes. The problem, though, is... If I didn't like a class, I didn't go to it. If I didn't want to do a test or a project, I just didn't do it. I was too busy fluffing pillows. Or chilling with my girlfriend. But I did work, and I worked pretty hard... I was busy a lot in college. I I made pizzas at Little Caesars at first. I waited tables at TGI Fridays during the the flare with the suspenders and the funky hats and stuff like that. If anyone ever saw office space, you know what they're lampooning there? I lived that. I worked nearly full-time as a radio weatherman. Some of you like to make fun of my voice. That's how I learned it. This ain't partly cloudy this afternoon. Temperature's topping out at 42 degrees. I did thousands of weather forecasts. It's, it's in my head. I can't, I can't not do it. I wasn't lazy, but in the end, I barely graduated from college. My handball phys ed class almost deep-sixed me. If I was late one more time, I was not going to graduate. And I'm not a doctor. I wasn't going to work at the CDC or something like that. I was a comm major. It took me five and a half years to graduate. Because I worked hard at the wrong things. I was busy with the wrong things. I was, my first job was to be a student, a college student, not to do all this other stuff, fluffing pillows and waiting tables. Now, I know when it comes to college or doing chores, or spending time with your children or maybe even working out, it's so easy to prioritize these mundane tasks that are less important in front of the ones that are more important, right? That's me. Maybe you to some extent. I think we share in this challenge. I think we see it, but sometimes we feel stuck like we can't do anything about it. So we need to throw out a lifeline here, friends. We need some help. We're going to go to Paul here. And I'm going to give you a little warning on this. I'm taking this scripture a smidge out of context. Now explain here, but I think it's applicable for us here in, in this context. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And this is where I think it's really important. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Now granted, this is a bit in the context of talking about intimacy and sex and all those things, but it really sets us up for a conversation on stewardship. And we've been given this asset, our body and our minds. We're to steward those things. We're to glorify God, as it also says in 1 Corinthians 10 here. So whatever you do, eat, drink. Do it all for the glory of God. Thank you, Paul. Jesus helps us get our priorities right by helping us with another reframe. We had the first reframe around sloth. There's another reframe around stewardship. Hear me, friends, when I say, when Jesus is Lord of our life, we are renters, not owners. When Jesus is Lord of our life, we are renters, not owners. This is what I mean by that. Think about it. As a renter, you are being trusted by another, by a landlord, Lord, to steward an asset, particular house or apartment. You have the liberty to live in it and, you know, pick out the couch and, you know, pots and pans and things like that, put food in it. You have the liberty to live in it, but you do not have the license to do what you want with it. You can come home at 2 a.m. in the morning but you can't demo the kitchen. (laughs) You can't replace the shingles, you know, on the roof. You can't sell it to someone else because you don't own it. You're not the owner. And as Christians, we're not the owners either. We're not the owners of ourselves because we were bought with a price. We can't waste time, talent, and treasure to, to, to spend it on whatever we want because they're not our own. They are gifts from God. They are gifts from God, and in some ways, they're on lease to us to steward them well, to create shalom and flourishing, to glorify God for the sake of His will, His kingdom. And Jesus doesn't only give us an example of this in His life and His obedience. He's always doing the will of the Father, of course, but also through His death and resurrection, He redeems and reframes our time and talent and treasures. He used our gifts and assets. He gives us real power in the gospel and the Holy Spirit to be other centered, to be grounded in God's love for us, so that we can use those things with gratitude and be active to glorify God, to do his will for the sake of his kingdom. Friends, I would say that time is running out. Time is running out for us to do this. Time is not on our side. We need to be awake. Hitler is invading Germany, metaphorically, if you will. From our New Testament reading this morning, we did uh, Ephesians 5 here, and it says this, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine Upon you. Look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Friends, let us not be foolish. There's really two choices, not three choices in our lives. We sort of convince ourselves that we have three. It's really two. It's either we're doing the will of the Lord. Uh, or I should say, we think, we're doing either do the will of the Lord, not do the will of the Lord, and then thirdly, indifference or appeasement, when it's really two. It's either we're doing the will or not doing the will of the Lord. And when we choose not to do the right thing, right now we're being the sluggard. When we choose to do the right thing, we're being like Jesus. We're being Christ-like. I'm sure people have seen that in you, and I'm sure you've seen that in other people as well too. I see Jesus in you. You're actively engaged. You're doing the right thing right now. So as we close here, friends, uh, I'm at any moment waiting for the lightning bolt to come down and hit me on this one (laughs) because because I violate this all the time. I'm always prioritizing other things that might be more important than others. My wife rebuked me for this last night. (laughs) Prioritizing things that I don't really find as priorities, Dan. Why are you doing that? But Proverbs 24 says this, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And if you know, Scott, Mike, have talked about before the significance of the number seven. It doesn't literally mean seven. It just means a lot, like ongoing. And this sin of sloth, as we reframe it and think about it as indifference and inaction, we suffer from this sickness a lot, don't we? But we're not going to fail. We're not going to. Fa- we're not going to be taken over by the robber. This is our, our end state here. We're not going to be invaded by the dictator because Jesus has given us His gospel. He has given us today, right now, the Holy Spirit to renew us, to restore us. This hope, this hope that does not disappoint, that can reframe our priorities and be more actively involved in this world and in goodness. Great is his faithfulness, even in the midst of our sluggishness, sluggardness. So today, friends, if you are stuck, if you are stuck, if you got the palsy, I know Ben's probably laughing over there. We went to a a sermon where that was repeated like 150 times. If you are stuck, if you got the palsy, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus invites us and gives us the power to pick up a mat and walk, and we can walk wide awake as faithful stewards of what we have been given to us and service what is good in the face of evil. We can care anew. Please hear me as I pray. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh. It separates the good things from the bad things, Lord. Uh, But at the end of the day, Lord, you love us and you have a vision for us in our lives. And it's one of thriving. It's one of engagement. uh, It's one of goodness. It's one of peace and shalom. Father, give us that vision today. Help us, because it's so difficult to get our priorities straight, Lord, that we would not let the world pass us by, Lord, that we would engage in injustice and the things that are before us of whatever that is, of whether it's invasions or, or death and uh, racism, all of these things, inequities, Father, that we would engage in our families and our communities uh, in the ways that you've gifted us to do, not out of obligation or guilt, but because of the gospel and the love you have for us. We pray these things in your name.
1: I'm sure, like, uh, like me, you found this very practical. Um, and, in and, and sluggishness can can look like different things. I remember years ago we had a conference here uh, called Dignity, where we talked about sex trafficking in Atlanta. One of the owners of the building where we were at the time, this is several locations ago, I was sharing with him uh, what what this was about, why we're having this gathering, and I'll never forget. It. He looked at me and I, well, I invited him to come to the conference, and I, he looked at me and says, "Oh." I, I couldn't do that," said. So "Why not?" And he, he says, "I, I just—it's too hard. I, I, if I learn something about that, then I'll, I'll have to do something about that. I, I don't want to do that." So sometimes it's obvious like that, but sometimes it's just what what Dan said—is just the folding in the hands in the morning, where like I know I need to today. I know there's a list, and I don't want to do it for my spouse or for myself. Or Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's something very specific that came to mind. But one of the things that we do here at City Church is that we we practice confession. Now, one of the things that we say is that because we are the body of Christ, because we belong one to another, confession isn't simply something we do privately. It's something that we can do publicly together. As we like to do here at the very end of this confession publicly, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to make it private as well, individual. So let's use this confession together. And let's... Oh, wait. We're not doing that today. <laughs> Joke's on me. All right, first of the month, uh, for those of you who don't know, first of the month we do the Apostles' Creed. There's nothing about sluggishness in the Apostles' Creed. Okay, let's use now the Apostles' Creed together and feel free at another late time to pray privately to God about your sluggishness. All right, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. We believe Or where, He descended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In Dan's sermon, I was really struck with that one passage where Jesus was, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one thing you can say about Jesus is this. Jesus was not a busy person, nor was he a sluggard. What was he? Well, I think that what